Welcome to the Open House Podcast. Conversations exploring life, faith and hope with Stephen O'Doherty. Australians pride themselves, we pride ourselves, don't we, on being tough people from a sunburned country. But even the laconic Aussie get-it-done spirit is no match for a changing and variable climate. The facts simply are that rainfall patterns are shifting and droughts and floods are more severe than they were in the past. And I don't think it serves us well to just say, well, we can't agree on who caused it, therefore we won't do anything about it. We really have to have a conversation about this because our country is changing and the very way our society works may indeed change as the result of the shifts that are taking place in our severe weather patterns. The authors of a new report by the Climate Commission are so concerned that they're urging the Australian government to protect the diminishing water supply to southern Australia. Seven climate change experts have authored this report, which collates the scientific peer-reviewed literature from the last few decades to give an overall picture of rainfall decline and the exacerbation of drought. They say that the drought we currently had has been made worse because of shifting climate patterns and increased intensity of flooding. And that is going to continue. This report says Australia's most populous cities will be among the area's hardest hit in coming decades and the declining rainfall will result in a reduced water supply. And yes, we may even need more desalination plants. Fancy that. One of the co-authors of this report is distinguished Professor Leslie Hughes from Macquarie University. Uh, She says there's an urgent need for a stronger federal government climate policy And to discuss that, she joins us now. Leslie Hughes, welcome to Open House. Oh, hi, Stephen. You make a very, very good point in this uh, report, which is fantastic, by the way, that where, when and how much water falls on Australia's land surface has influenced the pattern of human habitation and settlement for at least 60,000 years. And so we're used to a variable climate. We're used to periods of dry and wet. But what's different now? Well, as climate change is really starting to bite and as the world continues to warm and Australia continues to warm, um, there's all sorts of things happening both to the Earth's surface and to the climate other than just temperature rise. And one of the major changes is changes in rainfall patterns. And as you said, um, rainfall in uh, Australia has been always very variable, but it's becoming more so. And it's at both ends of the water spectrum. So those areas that are subject to drought are getting more severe droughts and those droughts are being exacerbated by climate change. But when we do get rain, it comes down in heavier bursts. And that's because a warmer, more energetic atmosphere can actually hold more water so that when it does rain, more of it tends to come down. So we're getting what we call an intensified water cycle, drier at the dry end, wetter and more intense at the wet end leading to flooding. Now, how do we know, firstly, that this is not a pattern that has repeated or recurred before? What's, what's our evidence of the very long human occupation telling us about Australia's rainfall and indeed water usage itself? Yeah. Well, look, when, when we talk about climate rather than weather, yeah. we have to look at um, uh, a trend over several decades. So if we look at rainfall over the last few decades in southern Australia. It's been declining, especially rainfall that normally happens in the cooler months. 
In northern Australia, it's actually getting wetter over the same time period. So it depends on where you are in Australia as to what you're experiencing. But those trends are now pretty solid over the last three or more decades. And is there evidence that we can look at from a range of evidence, including the oral tradition of, of Aboriginal Australians, that, that can tell us more about the, you know, the far distant past? Well, um, yes, we can always look back to the far distant past to help um, try, try to get information about the future. But there is sort of a limit, and that's because if we... I'll give you a stat here. If we look back over the, the last... 7,000 years, so going back to sort of the start of organised agriculture in ancient Egypt, for example, Mm -hmm. and if we compare the rate of climate change over that time to the rate of climate change between now and the 1970s, climate has been changing globally at about 170 times the rate in the last 40 years as it has in the last 7,000. So what that means is that, yes, we can look back in the past, but in a way what it tells us is somewhat limited in terms of informing us about the future because things are happening so much faster now Mm. than they ever really had in the geological record. All right, so what are... And that's very important to underline and... uh, and and good information. What are the factors that impact then on Australia's water cycle? Well, um, as the climate changes, what we're seeing is a shift in rainfall patterns right across southerly Australia in particular. So we've got drying in places like the Murray-Darling Basin, for example, where a third of our food is produced. There's been an over 40% decline in stream flow since the 1990s. Over in Western Australia, um, it's about a 50% decline. And in fact, the, the inflows into the dams that supply the Perth water supply um, have been reducing very, very sharply going back to the 1970s. And you said in this report that in fact, the current drought, which is, and we have cycles of drought, that's what Australia is about, drought yep. and flood. Um, but this one, you said it's made more intense because of climate change now how do you how do you know that okay so if a a drought is just a period of dry weather what really matters um to say agriculture is soil moisture because that's where plants crops get their soil get their water from so if you've got the same drought but one's in a cooler climate and one's in a warmer climate the impact of the drought in the warmer climate is much greater because it's drying out the soil even faster. So what that means is that when you have a drought in a warming climate, its impacts are being exacerbated by that warming. Mm. The thing about climate change is we think of it as a threat multiplier. That is, there's all these other threats to our environment and our economy and our society. Mm. And what climate change is doing is exacerbating many of those already existing threats. Our guest on Open House is Professor Leslie Hughes. She's one of the climate councillors and their report just released in the last few days, Deluge and Drought, Australia's Water Security in a Changing Climate. Well, you introduce a notion like water security and hopefully people start to take notice because it is about productivity and about what happens to the soil long term. Will it continue to be productive? Mm-hmm. But And it's about uh, whether we can, you know, literally, whether we can uh, sustain our people and whether we have to, you know, build new dams and so on. So what is the outlook that the Climate Council has come up with? 
Well, I mean, we don't know when the uh, this current drought will end. Um, one worrying thing is that the Bureau of Meteorology is now giving the chances of an El Nino event occurring this summer at about 70%. So one of the really distinctive and worrying things about the current drought is that it's occurring in a non-El Nino period. Normally we get droughts in El Nino yeah. and in neutral ENSO cycle times it tends to be pretty benign climate. But we've got this particular severe drought in a non-El Nino. If we get an El Nino this coming summer, of course, it will make it even worse. So that that's a, a near-term potential outlook. Longer term, obviously, we are a very adaptable people. We have been adapting um, to variable climate um, going back to Aboriginal times for thousands of years and, and European times for a couple of hundred years. Um, but adapting is expensive and it has costs for other things. So, for example, yes, we can build more dams. Um, dams cost a lot of money and they have um, pretty serious environmental impacts on a whole lot of other things. So that raises more conflict between you know, needs for environment and needs for people and agriculture, as we see with the ongoing conflict about water allocation in the Murray-Darling. So yes. adapting is possible at this point, but it's expensive and there is potential for conflict. What we're worried about, though, looking ahead towards, you know, say, the second half of this century, is that if we don't stabilise the climate by reducing greenhouse gas emissions rapidly and deeply then we may get to a point where there are climatic changes that we simply are not able to adapt to. Um, and then that's when we're in real problems. So this is, uh, for example, the report points out that um, a warmer atmosphere holds more water vapour. A wetter right. atmosphere um, brings yeah. more intense rainfall. And so it goes on. And I've just read a report yeah. about the... Uh, Oceania region, in fact, put out by Caritas Australia. Uh, we're speaking with them for this program, as a matter of fact. Um, and they say that in other parts of the world, this is, you know, suddenly they're saying we we can't grow any crops anymore. It keeps raining and washing it, washing them away. Well, that's pretty devastating yep. if your village just can't feed itself anymore. Exactly. So, yes, too much water is a bad thing. Too little water is a bad thing. You know, and water is life. We, we cannot survive on this planet without the right amount of water to grow our food, etc., etc. So, and that's why we've, we've really focused on water security in this, in this document mm. because it is about the security of us as human beings on, on the planet, on this continent. Well, now, Leslie Hughes, what about you know, the great artesian basin and all those things we learned yeah. about in school. We've got a lot of a fair amount of water under the ground. Yeah, we do. Um, and one of the things we have to do is make sure um, we look after that groundwater. There are some parts of Australia, Alice Springs being one, where the extraction of water from groundwater is greater than the water going back to recharge those aquifers. So, um, you know, one of the things we've got to be very careful about doing is not running some of those aquifers dry in places that are dependent upon them. And certainly Alice Springs is one place um, where there is unsustainable water extraction. Wow. I was chatting with someone whose business actually involves taking water from one of these great basin areas where there are, I don't know, some, some multiple of the Sydney Harbour sort of, you know, they're waiting yes. to be taken out. <laughs> and, yeah, and we're all, we're all buying bottled water now, so that kind of works. But do we have to start 
so you're saying we actually have to get our industry, and, and that includes agricultural industries, to think about the amount of water they're taking from, from bores? Yes, we absolutely do, wow. because we simply cannot afford to take more than is going back in, because then the bath will, will run dry. And <laughs> very much depends on, on where you are in the continent as to how dangerous that prospect is. Hmm. It is, for example, one of the reasons why people are so worried about opening up coal mining in the Galilee Basin, including the Adani mine um, in Queensland, is that um, mining um, uses a, a lot of water for many of its processes and the water uh, proposed to be extracted to just keep the Adani mine going um, could well, you know, is predicted to have very, very damaging impacts on the groundwater in that region which, of course, then also affects um, the amount of water available via bores for, for local agriculture as well as environmental uh, swamps and things. Mm. Well, now, the, the Climate Council, which was the Climate Commission, it's worth talking for a minute or two about, about what happened there. So the Climate Commission was set up by the Gillard government and your role right. as a Climate Commissioner at that time was what, to educate Australians? Well, yes, we, we, there were six of us appointed um, by the Gillard government um, back in 2011 and it was at a time when the clean energy package was coming in um, and the carbon price was part of that package. And so um, the government considered that there really needed to be um, a forum of communication um, so that people were informed about what a carbon price meant and what the risks of climate change were as a rationale for introducing the carbon price. So for the next two and a half years, uh, we travelled all over the country. We did about 30 uh, regional and capital city meetings, literally sitting in town halls or RSL clubs or yeah, whatever, libraries and things. It's very real, isn't it? It's fantastic. Um, and, yes, and, and answering, you know, we'd give a short presentation about climate change and then we'd be there to just answer questions from the audience as best we could. How did you find um, them? Receptive? Very receptive. In fact, the audiences were, you know, for the most part, um, very engaged. Um, people really wanted to know and understand. Mm. Uh, we very, you know, there was the odd um, hostile questioning, though tended not to be a real question, usually a, a forum for comment. <laughs> In um, the but, words of but, the famous Tony Jones, I'll yes. take that as a comment. That's right. Um, so, uh, but uh, but overall, we had very very positive interactions all over Australia. Yes, yes. Well, then the climate commission was disbanded famously on the very first full day, I think, of the Abbott government. The politics right, hasn't really but... served this issue that well, has it? Uh, no, unfortunately, it hasn't. I mean, we we had we did have the heads up that this would happen. We'd mm. been told quite clearly um, that we would be abolished if the Abbott government yeah, yeah. got in. Yeah, uh, they were they were true to their word, yeah. um, but we had all we all felt um, that we hadn't certainly finished the job that we'd been tasked with doing. Uh, far from it. So we put our heads together and decided that if the Australian public would support us, we would form a new organisation that would be publicly funded. And so about 10 days after we were abolished, we uh, went out to ask for public support. And it was a really extraordinary experience, actually. You know, we opened our website. You know, Tim Flannery went on late line to, to announce it mm. and said that our website would be open at one minute past midnight to receive donations. And then we sort of sat back and crossed our fingers. And sure enough, at one minute past midnight, the first $15 donation rolled in. And 
By that afternoon, we'd raised over 200000 and by a week later, we'd raised $1.2 million. Wow. That, that was five years ago, and we're still going strong. You are. Professor Leslie Hughes is with us. She is an ecologist um, with the Department of Biological Sciences at Macquarie University and a world expert on climate change. You've, you uh, were lead author, I think, for the fourth and fifth IPCC reports, which is no small matter, and um, a group of scientists here in Australia that are really doing quite phenomenal work. What drives you? What, what is your motivation? Well, Stephen, as you know, I've got two children and uh, what drives me really um, is not just being a scientist and, and seeing the science unfold in front of my very eyes, but I want a better future for my children. I want them to... Uh, be able to have children themselves one day and have a, a habitable planet. And the way we're going, and I know this makes me sound like a catastrophist, but but, it, like but it's really yeah. <laughs> really true. The way we're going is that we're heading for a planet that humans can't inhabit. Is that right? And that, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> we're still pumping out um, more than fifty gigatons of, of carbon into the atmosphere every year. Um, our emissions are still going. Going up, then they haven't peaked yet and going down. Mm. Um, we are seeing all around us, you know, especially in Australia, but also, you know, look at the wildflowers in in California that that have just wiped out whole towns. Um, we've got sea level rising that will continue to rise for thousands of years, even after we get the climate under control. We've got um, glaciers melting and uh, putting about a sixth of the world's population at risk from water security because that where they get their fresh water and I could go on and on and on being a Cassandra but all of this points to an ongoing risk for human and all other life on the planet so mm. given what I know from the science I don't see how I could spend my life doing anything else from from a moral point of view it has become for me a, a moral imperative as well as a scientific one. That's such an important idea I would think that for Christians Christians who receive the information that you and your colleagues provide, then there's a moral imperative on us to act. Did God actually not ask us to do something about it? Did he not ask us to be the stewards of this planet? So my question then to you, Leslie Hughes, is what can we do? Well, uh, you can support the Climate Council. And in fact, we've <laughs> just spent, sent out um, last week under my name, actually, a toolkit for people to um, help them take action on climate change. So if you are a Climate Council supporter, you will have received that. And there's lots and lots of things that people can do. And climate change is one of those big, complex, wicked problems that won't be solved with a, sim a single set of actions at mm. one level. So there's actions we can take at an individual level, be that, you know, thinking about our own carbon footprint, what we eat, how we transport ourselves, um, how we produce our own energy, if we can afford it, you know, use green power or put solar panels on, that's at an individual level. Mm. I often think that the most powerful thing that people can do is to join a group of like-minded individuals because the power of a group is always uh, more than the power of, of individuals. Um, we've all got a vote once we're 18 and over. Um, you know, if, if everybody in Australia that was concerned about climate change called their local MP and said, I'm only going to vote for you if you have a decent climate policy, yeah, yeah. I think we'd see some pretty rapid change pretty quickly. And, and most of us have got money in a bank or in superannuation um, and there is an ongoing 
an accelerating trend towards divestment from fossil fuels mm. and we can contribute to that by making it clear to our banks and our superannuation funds that, that we don't want our money going to poisoning the planet. So that's just a few things um, but there are a whole bunch of levels of, of action and I think just being a collective voice for action and saying to this government and governments everywhere you know, these are our lives you're playing with, these are our futures, our children's future that you're playing with. It's not a joke and it's very, very urgent and we really need, actually, the science is telling us that unless we peak emissions and start rapidly declining by 2020, the second half of this century is looking like a very dangerous place. We'll leave it there at that poignant moment. Leslie Hughes, thank you so much for speaking with us tonight. My pleasure, Stephen. Leslie Hughes is Distinguished Professor of Biology and Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Research Integrity and Development at Macquarie University, one of the climate counsellors and, um, well, a, a world expert, a lead author in those IPCC reports, which have been controversial. I get the controversy for some people, but we need to move beyond that. And we wanted to give good time to discussing this issue tonight because it's very important. Uh, for me as a Christian, it's very important to take notice of this good data that's showing us that things are accelerating, that the uh, variability has accelerated. And you heard the, the numbers that Leslie quoted there. Um, and there are real-world consequences of that. We can argue about whether it was man-made or not, um, it's, but it's kind of it misses the point. There is a thing that we need to do that will help. Uh, not just us, but our brothers and sisters in other parts, particularly of our own region. Later on on Open House, we're going to be speaking with Caritas Australia because they've just released another report which talks about the impact of uh, shifting weather patterns as the result of shifting climate, variable climate, in um, the South Pacific region. So, for instance, village a village that can't grow crops anymore because it rains so much it washes all the seeds away. As I said to Leslie Hughes, that's a pretty gross effect. That is to say, whole-scale effect. You just can't grow your food anymore, and it's okay for us. We might be able to go to the supermarket and enjoy some cool air while we pick up our groceries. But if your village can't grow crops, that's a very interesting point that Leslie made. It's almost as though the people uh, who... Actually, I think it's our next guest uh, who, who makes that point the people who can least afford to do something about it, and in fact, who are least responsible for some of the things that have created these conditions are the ones that are at the front line of being affected. So that, that'll be later on in Open House. Um, and, and I just want to thank the Climate Commissioners and uh, other scientists who do their work diligently. They're often misunderstood, sometimes pillory, pilloried, and that's grossly unfair because they just want a good world like the rest of us. And they're using their skills to try to improve things. And I think we can listen to them more. Discover more Open House podcasts at openhousecommunity.com.au.